You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Good morning, everyone. Please turn to John chapter 6, Gospel of John, the sixth chapter, picking up where we left off last week. Have you heard the expression, first world problems? Have you heard that expression, first world problems? Oh good, this will be fun then. The expression, first world problems, is an expression that mocks the things about which people from affluent countries and societies might complain. Okay, that includes us. In other words, the things that people complain about in prosperous countries are oftentimes things that people from poor countries wouldn't even have the opportunity to complain about. You'll get what I'm saying here in just a second, because here are some examples. Okay, first world problems. The string on my tea bag fell into the water. You like, everybody hate that? I hate that. I take my, my uh, string with the tab, tag and I wrap it around the handle of the cup and thread it back through. And that way it doesn't fall in because I don't like when it falls in. Right? First, first world problem. Okay, here, here's one. And maybe you've never had this thought. Probably you don't care. But some people probably do. McDonald's doesn't deliver. Yeah. That would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? And then, and then so, you know, you finally make it to McDonald's, you drag yourself over there, and what happens? Well, I only got one sauce with my 20 nuggets and had to ration it like it was World War II. Okay? Yeah. First world problems. Okay. Or, you know, you're at home, you're hungry, and you can't believe it. There isn't any food. There's just a bunch of ingredients to make food. No food. Or, and I want, I'm going to ask, okay, I'm going to ask, here's one. The pizza box doesn't fit in the fridge. How many of you have experienced this? Yeah, yeah, the pizza box doesn't fit in the fridge. We've seen that. Okay. Here's a guy with real problems, though. I can't believe I bought a toaster with no bagel setting. I mean, those, those would be real problems, right? Or here... What are you supposed to do? My treadmill is broken, so I have to run outside. <laughs> That's bad, right? Here's one. Uh, technology often makes its way into these. My laptop is dying, but my charger's all the way upstairs. Whatever will I do? Or, this is, this is one of my favorites, and some people, well, I'll tell you that in just a second. Okay, but here's one. Battery died in the car remote. Had to unlock it with the key. You know, there's people that don't know you can unlock it with the key. They think that the remote is the only way to unlock the door. And maybe there are cars that's true. I don't know, but that'd be bad, wouldn't it? You need some kind of a backup plan there. Anyway, here's our final first world problem this morning. There's lots of others, but this is one that maybe some of you can identify with. I have more clothes than clothes hangers, right? Isn't that an awful thing? I mean, how could we allow such things as these to happen, right? Uh, oh, here's another one. I'm guessing... Many of you have experienced this or something like it. Does this conversation sound familiar? Where do you want to go eat? What's the response? I don't know. 
I don't care. Where do you want to go? It doesn't matter to me. Well, what are you hungry for? I don't know. And on and on. You've had that conversation probably or, or heard it at least. So let's just carry that out a little bit. Let's say you finally pick a place and you go to one of my favorite places. You go to Who Hot, right? Okay. How many of you have been to Who Hot? Anybody? Yeah? A few of you? That's good. That's good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So you go to Who Hot. Now, I, I love Who Hot, but you get there, and the first thing you got to do, you're confronted with the waitress or wait person comes over and, uh, and, and says, uh, so would you like anything to drink? Now, you know, maybe you're going to stick with water, and that's fine. But they have something at Who Hot called the Coca-Cola Freestyle Machine. Now, the Coca-Cola Freestyle Machine is an amazing thing because it allows for around 125 different drink and flavor combinations, right? I mean, you start with a base kind of a, uh, it could be a soda or a flavored water or even just regular water. I mean, they got all kinds of stuff. And then you add other things to it. So let's say you finally settle, you know, out of 125 or 127 or whatever it is, different options. You finally settle on caffeine-free diet cherry vanilla Coke. Right? I, I don't recommend that. I recommend uh, Cherry Vanilla Coke Zero myself, but don't worry about that. Anyway, then comes time. You're at Who Hot, remember? Then comes time to pick out your food. Now, if you've not been to Who Hot, you've got to know how this works. Uh, you go into the line. It's a serve-yourself kind of a place. Uh, and so you, you take a bowl. You're only supposed to take one. I've seen you people in action, too, okay? Yeah. You're only supposed to take one. And the first thing you encounter in the line there is there's different kinds of meat. Oh, you know, maybe uh, half a dozen or so different kinds of meat. There's always pork and chicken and beef, and then they'll have some kind of seafood, maybe some meatballs, and maybe, I mean, they've got some weird stuff sometimes. But anyway, so you've, you've got your meat. So you put the whatever kind of meat you want in your bowl. You've got you to decide. And then there's four, at least four different kinds of noodles, right? I like the pad thai noodles. Those are my favorite. Yeah, they get kind of, never mind, chewy when, you, when they get fried up. Okay, and then, then comes the vegetables and fruits and little green leafy things, whatever those are. I don't know. Um, and cilantro. Any of you like cilantro, right? I'm one of those people to whom cilantro tastes like soap. Okay, so I don't go there. But you might not be one of those people. So, so you know, you're going through the... And I'm always asking, this is my first world problem, why don't they have mangoes today? I want mangoes, right? Okay, so anyway, forget that. So then there's 15 or 18 different kinds of sauces that you can stick on there. And juices, like lemon juice or lime juice or something else. Three different kinds of oil that you can put on it. And then you, you select any or all of these. Whatever combination you want, right? It could take forever if you don't know what you're doing there. And so then you go and you put your bowl over there and they cook it right in front of you, which is really cool. And then they hand you this plate of steaming food. And, of course, Who Hot is an all-you-can-eat restaurant. So you get to go back as many times as you want, as try as many different combinations as you want, at least until you're full. Well, let's carry this just a little bit farther. I know I'm getting a little ridiculous here. Let's suppose you have any room at all left for dessert. So you decide to go to Cold Stone Creamery for some ice cream. Anybody ever been there? Cold Stone Creamery. This is a different kind of a place. You know, when I was a kid, we had Baskin-Robbins. And Baskin-Robbins, they had 30 wonderful flavors, 31 Anyway, and uh, yeah, picking thir out of 31, you, know, you come home with vanilla and you're, you're kind of like, people look at you like, what are you doing? This is Baskin Robbins. Well, Cold Stone Creamery has taken that to another level. Pick from at least, a, I think, a dozen different kinds of ice cream, maybe more. Select then from among 30 
or so, different kinds of toppings. And then they put it out there, and it's called cold stone because they've got these granite plates that are refrigerated constantly. So they're cold. They keep the ice cream cold. While they're mixing all that in together, you know, it's real ice cream. It's not this soft serve stuff. And they're mixing all that in together, and then they put it in your bowl, and they hand it to you. And there's like, you know, 16 million calories right there in front of you. And now you're all hungry, so you all want to go stop and go to lunch, right? No, we're not going to do that. Not happening. Here's my point. Here's my point. And you might be asking this uh, question, or maybe you're ahead of me. What do who hot and cold stone creamery and things like these have in common with first world problems? In this example, who hot and cold stone creamery represent all the options available to the American consumer. I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? Because there's how many different kinds of places you can go eat and how many, different kind, how many different actual restaurants for each one of those kinds of different places that you can go eat. Anyway, we are so used to having options that we expect them and we even demand them. And first world problems are representative of that mindset. It's not exactly the way I want it to be. And so I'm disappointed, and I'm upset, and I'm unhappy, and I'm going to go looking for someplace else that's going to give me exactly what I want. Well, at the end of John chapter 6, there's kind of a similar reaction, I think, to Jesus by those who heard him speak about himself. And, and we'll get into that here in a minute when we get into the scripture. But there's a similar reaction among those who had been called his disciples up to that point. That's going to be a key word here. And I want you to pay attention to that when we get, it's especially at the end of this, but we have to go through some other things to get there to set the stage for the point that's going to come at the end of the chapter. Today's message is called True Discipleship. And I hope it challenges us to consider what kind of disciples of Jesus we really are. We're going to begin in verse 41. Speaking about Jesus, it says, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone, excuse me, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In this passage, or in the passage that we read last week, earlier in chapter 6, Jesus claimed to be the bread of life, and he also claimed that he had come down from heaven. And then we read that again here, right? Now, for most Christians, I think in modern times, these two statements present no problems. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, we understand he was using a metaphor. 
Jesus is the source of spiritual sustenance and nourishment that results in godly spiritual life as well as eternal life. We understand that. At least I hope we do. And the statement that he had come down from heaven agrees with our understanding that Jesus is God, something we talked about a few weeks ago. Eternal and certainly pre-existent. Jesus as God has always existed. Jesus coming to earth is described in Philippians chapter 2 as him humbling himself or emptying himself and being made in the likeness of men or being found in appearance as a man. And this squares with, again, modern Christian understanding of who Jesus is, at least for the most part. Yes, there's a lot of heresy out there still, and there's a lot of people who don't understand about the deity of Christ. But for most of us, I think we do understand these things about him. And so it doesn't present a problem for us, maybe. But in John chapter 6, the people listening to Jesus there didn't have the benefit of our historical perspective. They were hearing these things for the first time, and they thought that what they were hearing didn't agree with their experience with what they thought they already knew. See, they, in, in their minds, Jesus was someone that they had known or known about since he was quite young. And they knew the family of Jesus. And in, his, in, in their minds, Jesus is just like everybody else. Well, he, we, he grew up just down the road here. I mean, this is taking place in Capernaum, which is right on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Nazareth is kind of off to the southwest of Capernaum, but it's not too far He grew up just down the road from us. We know his family. How can he say he's come down out of heaven? This is one of the reasons that it's so important that we understand and accept the deity of Jesus. Because if he really is just another man, then he really isn't the bread of life that came down from heaven. Okay, We have to to know that. So how do we come to a correct and true understanding about who Jesus is and where he came from? And maybe you're already there. Maybe you're sitting here saying, I I know these things about Jesus. I'm not sure why you're telling me this. Well, I want us to go back and put ourselves in these people's position to understand how they're thinking. And also to point out some things about how we got to where we are, if you are there already. okay. In order to know who Jesus is, And where he came from, it has to be revealed to us by God, God the Father. Now, there are two categories of revelation that God provides. First, he provides general revelation. And general revelation includes everything that we see in creation that testifies that there is a God. And it also includes even our own design. Having been created in the image of God with an innate knowledge and awareness of God's moral law. No, maybe we couldn't put it all into words. We might say that we instinctively know that certain acts are right and others are wrong. Okay? Everybody has that. Even when we suppress it, it's still there. Now, natural revelation has limitations. It is not nearly detailed or specific enough to provide us with information about who Jesus is, where Jesus came from, and what that means for all of us. You can't get that by looking at the mountains and say, wow, there is a God. He must have had a son named Jesus. You can't get that from that, okay? So natural revelation has its limitations. In order to give us that information, God employed special revelation. Special revelation gives us specific details and information that we couldn't get any other way. 
And special revelation comes in essentially three forms. First, God reveals himself through deeds, acts, or events. And this, these would include the miraculous signs and wonders that Jesus performed that gave authenticity to his message. The second way God gives revel, special revelation is through words. I think I said there's going to be three. I only have two, so don't, don't mind that. Two. Uh, God gives a special revelation in his word. The book of Hebrews begins with these words. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. The words God spoke to people at any time. When God speaks and he's giving information that can only be given through speech, that's special revelation. When God speaks out loud from heaven, like he did at Jesus' baptism or at the transfiguration, other times when he spoke in the scriptures, or when he inspires people to speak his words. He inspired the prophets uh, to, to provide the messages that they brought, to write the books that they wrote. He inspired the gospel writers to write these, including John as he writes this. He inspired Paul to write his books in the New Testament, and so on, you see. That's special revelation. Jesus said that being taught by God is the only way to know what we need to know about him in order to put our faith in him. God has revealed the truth about his son Jesus through his spoken words, through his written words, and I guess that you could separate those out and make them two things. They're, they're kind of the same thing. But through his spoken words, through his written words, and through the miraculous signs and wonders that God performed and, through, and that Jesus performed. This is God's call to people. This is God's drawing of people to himself. Okay? It's not a... Uh, an individual is not feeling, I, I think I, you know, I think God's speaking to me. This is God has spoken, and that word is given to us in order to retrieve us to himself. Only by receiving and accepting the special revelation of God can a person believe in Jesus and be saved. There's not another way to get there. You have to know this information, and the information came because God gave it in a specific and special way. Okay. Enough said about that. Then taking up again the metaphor that he is the bread of life, Jesus shows himself to be superior to the bread from heaven, or manna, that the Israelites ate in the wilderness after they left Egypt, back in the book of Exodus. Now, manna was provided through supernatural means. And I just, I love the story about the manna. Because every day these people had a reminder, God is with us. God is providing on Friday, they had a, a, an extra reminder, Friday and Saturday, because they could go out. If they gathered too much during the rest of the week and tried to keep it overnight, it would spoil and go bad. Manna would. But on Friday, they were told, gather twice as much, and you're going to keep it and use it again on the Sabbath day. And it didn't go bad. Every week this happened. While they were in the wilderness. Every day they had a reminder that God was with them and giving them, uh, you know, providing for them what they needed. And although the manna was provided through supernatural means, it was physical food. People ate it to sustain physical life. But they still grew old and died. 
In last week's passage, the people asked Jesus for the bread from heaven, thinking it would permanently cure their physical hunger. Man, this is going to be great. We're going to have all the food we want. We're never going to have to. We're never, never going to be hungry again. Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that be great? I don't know if that's so great or not. I kind of enjoy the whole eating process, but you know, whatever. That's what they wanted. They were concerned only with their physical lives. Jesus is the bread from heaven that sustains spiritually and that provides for eternal spiritual life. Jesus ends his statement about being the living bread that came down out of heaven with these words. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. That's good, and we get that. But then he said, And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, rather than clearing up the entire matter, this promotes further controversy. Let's go on to verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. And when you read that, if you do what these people did you're going to be repulsed by what seems to be implied here. He's giving us his flesh to eat. He's giving us his blood to drink. That's that's disgusting. And the Jews asked that question. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And I'm seeing a trend here. You go back to chapter 3. Nicodemus asked Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? When Jesus told him, You must be born again. Really, Jesus? How does that work? Nicodemus uh, took him very literally, didn't he? And then there's the woman at the well at Sychar. Jesus offered her living water, never thirst again. She said, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. Very literal of her, wasn't it, to take Jesus that way. In last week's passage, after Jesus said, The bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world, the people responded with, Lord, always give us this bread. Thinking, bread, you know. I'd say that's very literal of them. And now in today's passage, after Jesus says, The bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, the Jews say, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Literalism reigns with these people. I mean, everything is is taken literally. But Jesus makes a statement here. And again, we come at this and we understand the figurative applications. We understand the metaphors and we understand some of the other symbolism that's involved that they didn't get at that point. And of course, we have the advantage of history that they didn't have. So let's not get too carried away with with, uh, tossing them under the bus here. But Jesus makes a statement here that reminds us very much of his institution of the Lord's Supper later on in Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14. He says here, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. 
He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Uh, When we read that, because we're so familiar with what comes after, we might be tempted to think that Jesus is talking about the Lord's Supper here. But he's not. It's a foreshadowing of that situation. He's maybe making some references that will help prepare people for the time when he will institute that. But this is not a direct reference to the Lord's Supper. It didn't exist yet. Instead, Jesus again is using a metaphor to compare physical things to spiritual things. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood mean what? Well, they mean to believe in him in such a way that he becomes a part of who we are. We take him into ourselves and we are becoming like him. The faith that we have in Jesus, true faith, real faith, changes us to become like him and motivates us to truly follow him. That's what he's saying. And they don't get it. They're taking this literally and they're not catching up to him very quickly. Now, at the end of this section, verse 58, uh, Jesus again emphasizes that those who ate the manna died physically, while those who have faith in him, in Jesus, have eternal spiritual life. And the people to whom Jesus spoke these words didn't understand because they were so focused on physical bread and physical life. There's so much more to our existence than just the physical necessities and physical experiences. God created us in his image so we could transcend our earthly physical existence and experience eternal spiritual life forever. That's what eternal means. Forever be with him. And now let's go to 59 and finish the chapter. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. Now he met Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And this is a difficult message. I mean, it is, for, for these people especially. Many of the people who listened to Jesus were, were still stuck on him saying that he had come from heaven. And they said, this is a difficult saying. Who can listen to it? And they're described here as being disciples of Jesus. And as disciples of Jesus, they had come to a crossroads with three choices as to which way they were going to go. 
There were three ways in which people responded to Jesus saying that he is the living bread that comes down from heaven. And those three responses define for us three kinds of disciples or so-called disciples. And the first one we find in verses 63 through 66. These are false disciples who fail to follow. Okay, there were those who had followed Jesus for a time. They'd been with him. They'd been traveling around. Hoping for some personal benefit like healing or food. But when they realized that what Jesus was actually demanding of them was total surrender of their will, giving up everything else in order to truly follow him, they turned away. They were unwilling to let go of themselves in order to gain eternal life. One commentator put it this way. This kind of disciple understands that being a follower of Jesus involves steadfast allegiance to him, even to his claims of deity and to being the one who gives eternal life. But this disciple refuses to accept these demands and voluntarily withdraws from the ranks of the disciples. He will accept free meals, but he will not submit to the lordship of Jesus. He retains his integrity, but he loses his soul. These are not true disciples. These are false disciples who fail to actually follow Jesus. And then there's another kind of false disciple mentioned here. And some will fall into this category even today. These are the disciples who will continue to maintain the appearance of following Jesus without truly surrendering to his will and his lordship. They stay in the fellowship of the disciples. They hang out with Christians. But they are not actually joined to Christ. And Judas Iscariot is given here as an example of such a false disciple. He appeared to follow Jesus. But he failed to allow Jesus to own him and to transform his life. These are the disciples who follow, but ultimately fail. In other words, they don't follow, they don't carry, on, carry through. And then the third kind of disciple here that's mentioned is illustrated by Simon Peter. Now, we know a lot about Simon Peter from other passages, and, and sometimes we think about him and what he did and what he said, and we shake our heads a little bit. But you've got to admire him for some of the things that he came up with. Simon Peter illustrates the disciple who understands very well what Jesus demands from those who would truly follow him. This kind of disciple has counted the cost and knows that it is nothing short of everything that he has and everything that he is. What does it cost you to follow Jesus? It costs you everything. But he also knows that no one else has the words of eternal life. And therefore, the cost, as great as it is, is not too great. This is the disciple who follows Jesus faithfully, even unto death. And you think about Peter. I identify a lot with Peter. Peter didn't always do the right thing. Peter didn't always understand everything about discipleship every moment. I'm there. But, and I hope to be here, Peter never stopped following Jesus, even when it led him to a martyr's death. He gave up his life because he was a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. And if you're still having difficulty understanding what Jesus meant 
when he said that he was the living bread that comes down out of heaven, then I'd say you need to be asking questions of spiritually mature Christians who can explain the metaphor to you. If you're still not getting it, but you want to know more, please ask those questions. Know this, there are more important concerns in life than your physical appetites and desires. Deciding what you will eat or drink or wear, these are first world problems compared to deciding whether you will follow Jesus or not. You need to know that Jesus was saying that we must be obedient to his teachings and be conformed to his character in order to receive a life that goes beyond our earthly physical lives and extends into and through eternity. The only way we can obtain the eternal life that he promises is to have a faith in him that leads us to true true discipleship. True disciples know the cost of following Jesus, but they also know the penalty of not following Jesus. And true disciples don't try to shop around to see who's got the best spiritual return for the least amount of effort. That's not what discipleship really is. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul gives us a wonderful statement of what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. This is Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. Paul, speaking about himself, says, But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, Jesus and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His suffering being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I can't think of a better description of true discipleship than that. Everything else goes away. Everything about who I am, everything about what I have, it's all laid down, given up, Hand it over to God. Do with it what you will, Lord, in order to follow Jesus. Don't take this the wrong way. When I say this the way I'm about to say it, don't take it the wrong way. I'm not pointing a finger. I'm not accusing. I'm, I'm including myself in this category when I say, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus today, and that's me, I do, I claim that. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus today, I challenge you to examine yourself. I challenge you to examine yourself and see whether there are limits to what you will do, limits to what you will endure in order to follow Jesus. Is there a point at which you say, well, that's too much, Jesus. I can't go with you there. Sorry. I mean, you know, we were, we were good there for a while, but not now. Make sure that you are committed to following him no matter where that path may lead. It may well lead to death. And if there's anyone here who is putting on the appearance of following Jesus, and again, I'm not pointing fingers or making accusations, but I'm just asking a question. If there's anyone here who is putting on the appearance of following Jesus, but who is not being transformed by his words and his power, I challenge you to make a real commitment I challenge you to make a real sacrifice in order to become a true disciple of Jesus. Because know this, the appearance of discipleship means nothing if there's no substance 
to back it up. And for anyone here today who has come to that crossroads of awareness about what truly following Jesus involves, but who also knows that no one else has the words of eternal life, I ask you, are you ready to genuinely commit yourself to following Jesus? Are you ready to repent of your sin, to confess your faith in Jesus to others, to be immersed into him for the forgiveness of your sin, and to take up your cross daily and follow him? If you're ready to become a true disciple of Jesus 